Hello, Detroit. We are authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Donna, you have uh, sort of an opening statement uh, that you want to launch with, and I want to give you the opportunity to do so. Yes. Um... There can be no broker peace with traitors of January 6th that would not lead to the sacrifice of Black people at the altar of white supremacy. We know and reject the aims of their sedition. Business owners, legislators, police, and professionals joined by working class and poor disenfranchised people and all united by white supremacy violently occupied the U.S. Capitol flying their traitorous flags, looting, dirtying, and defiling sacred spaces. There's no question what these people want. They haven't been discreet in announcing their intentions. They are seeking to reenact the 1877 compromise between Republican Rutherford Hayes and Democrat Samuel Tilden, where 20 electoral votes in three reconstruction states were openly disputed by allegations of fraud. Their allegations and efforts to overturn an election are strikingly similar to those today, and they comp the compromise they reached in 1877 is referenced by Senators Cruz, Hawley, and others as the model for their efforts to create an election commission today. Their allegations were circulated on a poster entitled, The Political Farce of 1876, the Two Negroes and Ten Whites Who Defeated the Will of the American People, as expressed to the ballot box on the seventh day of November, 1876. Their accusations are eerily similar to those leveled today. Authors of this poster were quoted as saying, we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Louisiana and Florida voted for Tilden by decisive majorities. And we are prepared to show up the villainous frauds of the returning boards all we ask is investigation by this commission and this by former president U.S. Grant. No man worthy of the office of president should be willing to hold it if counted in or placed there by any fraud. Either party can afford to be disappointed in the result, but the country cannot afford to have the result tainted by the suspicion of illegal or false returns. The compromise reached by this commission declared Rutherford Hayes the winner in exchange for removing federal troops from Southern states and ending reconstruction which heralded a sustained period of disenfranchisement, lynching, death, mobs, terror, economic assault, and unchecked oppression over Black Americans. We cannot let that happen again. We must stand strong. People on the side of justice must unite around holding those spreading baseless claims and their merry band of seditious thugs accountable for murder, rioting, violence, and their assault on democracy. Now, Orlando, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you, Donna. Um, the world watched last week when violent insurrectionists breached Capitol Police and security and took over the halls of the United States Congress. We all watched as rioters invaded congressional offices in the House floors. It's a scene that we will never forget. It is a scene that was undoubtedly incited by the United States president and lawmakers that continue to support his dangerous rhetoric that the 2020 election was stolen what we know for sure is that people of color, specifically Black folks, delivered a Biden-Harris victory, especially in Black epicenters like Detroit, Philly, Baltimore, Milwaukee, and Atlanta. 
The false narrative that the election was stolen is not only an assault to the Black voter electorate, it is a blatant attempt to delegitimize and marginalize the Black vote and contribute to the dangerous corruption narratives that are applied to Black cities. It was and is a dog whistle to the radicalized white supremacists who support Trump to organize and disrupt democracy. It was a call to submit their hate for Black folks with dangerous action. It's what we saw last week at the US Capitol, it's what we saw last spring at the Michigan Capitol, it's what we saw when we learned that there was a plot to kidnap and harm our governor, it's what we saw in attempts not to certify our local elections. It is glaringly apparent that not only do Black people need to continue to cast their vote, but work diligently to protect their vote. One social media personality asked this question to white rioters at Capitol, what is it that this country hasn't already given you? I challenge our listeners to sit with and interrogate that question in this moment. And yes, we see Republicans and Democrats alike with their performative statements and condemnations skirting accountability along with the call to heal as a country. I looked it up in the simplest definition of healing that I found read like this, to restore soundness or health. And with that, I asked this question, what exactly are we restoring as a country when our very foundation is rooted in genocide, colonialism, and the enslavement of Black people? Restore to what exactly? How about we move toward real accountability, reckoning, and true justice? As Black folks, we have many intersections and dualities. For me, it's being a Black man working in news and being traumatized by the news. For a lot of us, it's being the perfectors and saviors of our democracy and feeling ignored until the next election cycle rolls around. It is high time and 400 some odd years overdue for a radical uprooting of white supremacy and a radical imagining of what we want this country to be for the generations to come after us. Those are our thoughts on what happened last Tuesday at the United States Capitol. And as we all know, we are still very much processing that moments and the moments that have followed. Today, we welcome ML Elric. ML is a longtime Detroit resident and journalist reporting mostly as a City Hall watchdog for Fox 2 News and the Detroit Free Press. ML recently announced his candidacy for the District 4 City Council seat. ML, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Uh, Orlando, and, uh, Duh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Thank you. I Go did ahead, want Anya. to acknowledge that um, we did discuss um, ML's um, in last week's um, Authentically Detroit, and ML and I since spoke afterwards, and he um, had some thoughts about some of the things that I said, and I wanted to give him an opportunity to discuss that with us. Um, clarify any misstatements of mine, and then um, let's have some dialogue about what his candidacy will mean for our district. Sure, and, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Don and I have known each other for a long time, and uh, I've always felt that there's a good relationship, a lot of mutual respect, and I'm, I'm so glad to have you on the east side. When I look at the mission of, of uh, your organization, it's the mission that I have. Uh, first of all, I've got solar panels and rain barrels, so I'm all for green growth. We're trying to stabilize this neighborhood over here in East English Village and Morningside. I've been a coach at Eagle Sports and other places, um, trying to help youth find positive role models and good outlets for their energy. Um, and, 
and I really think that uh, that by finding people uh, of like minds that we can get things done that, that need to get done. And, and Orlando, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about Bridge Detroit because I feel that coverage of the city is something that the mainstream media has struggled to do, uh, both from uh, a different perspective and basically from a perspective different from people who look like me and also from, uh, from an intensity level. Um, when I went to Fox 2 in 2012, my role went from being kind of a, a local government watchdog to watching things all over the state. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that Mike Duggan has not been scrutinized in the same way that Kwame Kilpatrick was scrutinized. That's absolutely true. Uh, neither was Dave Bing or Ken Cockrell, in part because when I was in City Hall, the Detroit Free Press had two reporters in City Hall in City Hall on the 11th floor. And the Detroit News had three reporters over there. Right now, I don't think there's a full-time reporter assigned to cover City of Detroit government, Wayne County government, the courts. And I think there's only one or two full-time police reporters. So I, I think Bridge Detroit has an opportunity to fill a vacuum that is, is very sorely uh, uh, felt by those of us who care about the City of Detroit. Um, first of all, uh, I, I, I don't... Uh, I don't want to relitigate uh, any old, uh, old uh, matters. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk about Kwame Kilpatrick as much as anybody would like to. It's been one of the defining stories of, of my career. Um, it's something I, I quit a job. I got fired from a job, and I quit another job to stay on that story to get to the truth. Uh, I did see somebody on Facebook say that I'm such a bum. I even attacked Eminem. Actually, I wrote a profile at Eminem, but I guess if we're going to go after me on Eminem, we're going pretty deep. That's, uh, that's more than a B-side. That's, uh, that's the outtakes album. But uh, I don't think Eminem objected to that, to that profile. But, um, but one of the things I did want to speak about is uh, that I think, and, and for what it's worth, I think all of our coverage of, of the mayor was appropriate. Uh, people don't know this, but I voted for Kwame Kilpatrick the first time, and I was his first choice for press secretary. And I took a week off from work over the holidays in 2001 to decide whether to stay in journalism or to go work with Mayor Kilpatrick. I held him in such high regard. And, uh, and the way his career ended was uh, a disappointment and a heartbreak for me as well. Although I, I, won't, I won't pretend that I didn't think his time to go had come. But uh, one of the things that I'm concerned about is people sort of see me as a one trick pony. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the Kwame guy. Uh, in fact, I'm not. Uh, and one of the things I heard last week that, that did concern me a little bit is questions about why haven't I done anything about Gabe Leland? Well, first and foremost, before I got to baby, I did daddy. I did a story on Burton Leland not living in Detroit. Caught his ass, excuse me, in uh, East Lansing where he was doing some gardening at his home. Not where he said he lived, but at his home in East Lansing. Uh, when Gabe Leland came onto the council, I exposed some of his criminal hijinks when he was in high school, by the way, in East Lansing, not in Detroit, where he would have us believe. And since then, I've done more than any other reporter to expose the uh, mendacity and the criminality of Gabe Leland, starting with the contracts he voted for that benefited his girlfriend's company. I shot video of them having a nice sunset walk on Lakeshore Drive outside Gaspar Fiore's home, which is the home of her father, where he would stay, because I also caught his city car in the driveway there one Saturday morning. Uh, and I've also exposed the, uh, the plea deal to get him out of jail and asked people why they don't think that's enough for people in City Hall to call for him to be removed, or at least to have his staff, his car, and his committee assignments removed. I've also revealed 
secret FBI recordings of Mr. Leland in action at a strip club that he drove to in a city car on his way to a community meeting to demand payments or to arrange payments from a city contractor. Um, and and I, I say that not because I want to talk about Gabe Leland, but because I think there are a lot of stories I've done that maybe have not gotten as much attention. The state Supreme Court justice who ran as a Republican who wasn't going to work. The state senator, Jack Brandenburg, one of many state senators, Republican state senators primarily, who were leaving office with a bunch of cash in their campaign accounts that they were spending without any accountability. The deal that the Senate majority leader cut to buy a brand new Senate office building for the state and then left and took a job with the guy who sold that building to the state. I've exposed Republicans. And when I do that, people call me a Democrat. I've exposed Democrats. When I do that, people call me a Republican. And while I don't like to be called out of my name ever, I'm very comfortable that, uh, that people on both sides have found reasons to not like my work. And I'm very comfortable being judged by those people because I think my stories show that they were not working in the best interest of the people. I've always put public service above self-service. And the one thing that I'm happy to say that no matter what people feel about my work, the one thing they don't tell me is that it's incorrect. They may disagree with the subject, they may disagree with the approach, but they don't say that it wasn't accurate. And so I have to hang my hat on that. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to have the opportunity to say that to your audience because I think your audience is authentically Detroit and they're the people who are gonna save this city. We, we, we count on elected officials a lot. We call them leaders, but really they follow us where we go. And if we don't follow them once they get there to make sure they're leading in the right direction, then I, I feel that's a shame on us. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, and that does um, correct some misstatements I made. I, I have a couple of things to say about the news right now. Sure. One is that when you read the free press, it's really hard reading news online to see what's really in the news. What I found is that you actually have to dig to see what the stories are because what you get is whatever they've decided is the most popular story. And so after you and I corresponded over the weekend, um, Sunday morning, I spent all Sunday morning just researching it to make sure before I responded to your um, email that I had my facts because I don't ever like to be wrong. Um, but I was, and um, I, I think that um, it takes, um, it's, it's only the right thing to apologize for being wrong. So I apologize to you for that and for misstating your record because you, I did see how Deadline Detroit and Metro Times were taking your stories and quoting you in um, sharing that information. And so I want to thank you for that because it really works my nerves. When I saw that Gabe Leland voted on proposal and um, I'm not even going to comment on the content of proposal and right now, but when I saw that he voted on such a large, you know, measure that would generate so much money. Um, and here this guy has already been recognized as um, engaging in illegal activity. It just really pissed me off. He shouldn't get to do that. And um, I'm not, uh, I remember when Monica Conyers got run out of town for $2,000. That's what they found her on her. And Kay Everett for sausage. I mean, that is, has to be the funniest crime I've ever read about in my <laughs> life. It's not really funny, but it's like, my goodness, if I'm going down, I'm not going down for sausage. It was 17 man, pounds though. That was a lot of sausage. I like sausage too. Listen. <laughs> With a little mustard, I, I it's very good. Yeah, it is. It is. But you know, I always think if I'm going to do it, can it be that cheap? 
you know, but Gabe Leland was found with how much money that he extorted? It was around 15,000, 15, right? Around that number. Yeah, and, and even then he only got half of it. So he didn't even steal right. Yeah, well, but he tried. <laughs> he, <laughs> he did try. Right, God loves a trier. Yeah, I guess. But, you know, so that has been really upsetting to me. Um, but I do, we do have a num number of other questions for you. And one of the questions and one of the things that I shared was a perspective that we're going to get into a little bit later around how Black Detroiters in particular feel about what's happening in our city right now and how we are being represented at City Hall and also in the news. And so to the extent you were caught in a net where you did not belong, I apologize, but I think that there are some things that we need to discuss that are fair to discuss because we have not been well represented. And I think that um, that many of us feel that way. And I can't say everybody feels that way, um, but I don't think that I'm in the minority in saying this. I run a nonprofit. I'm talking to people in the community all the time who say, wait a minute, when is my turn? I was at a town hall meeting a couple of years. It was an evening city council meeting and people were lined up out the door asking, when are you going to come into my neighborhood and do anything, right? I'm a taxpayer. I've been here for 20, 30 years and I don't feel like I'm valued by this government. And so as we talk, I just want that frame to be in mind. It's not personal. You are right. Um, I don't know if you remember how we first met. I do. But <laughs> I was working in <laughs> Vanguard and there was somebody who was attempting to open up a, a strip club barbershop restaurant who worked for her husband. His wife worked for City Hall. Now, I'm not going to get into names, but. I was so upset about this. It was right around the block from my nonprofit, not far from my church. And I had read some articles you wrote in the paper about strip clubs. And I decided I was going to try to put this in the news because we felt so powerless. And you did write a story about it. And I ended up just to take us back to history, Richard Mack, um, who's now on the city charter um, revision mm -hmm. commission called me up. He was a member of um, Perfecting Church and he was representing Perfecting Church. I was at Second Ebenezer Church trying to keep strip clubs from you know invading our communities and that's something that that was your beat then right you were the strip club guy i know you're <laughs> well, let me set the record straight there <laughs> uh, uh, this so is a family I, show this is a yeah, family show i know I'm, that you weren't the strip club guy but you yeah, were writing about them <laughs> i'm not here to judge how anybody spends their spare time but but i will say i did write a story uh, about uh, a project <laughs> that would have put a multi-million dollar mega strip club in Capitol Park in the heart of downtown. Oh my God. And after I wrote that story, the mayor who initially had said, the mayor Kilpatrick initially said, business is business. But after that story came out, I think some people spoke to him and eventually that project collapsed. And, and Donna, I had forgotten that we worked together on that story in the, um, in the, uh, the Eastern corridor of, uh, of, um, of, of uh, uh, and Grand Boulevard there. Yeah. And after we wrote that story, um, that project also collapsed. It also would have been the biggest strip club in Detroit. And it would have been built right where Vanguard was converting some, some actually wonderful historic housing stock into homes for affordable living where families could move. And you were heartbroken that this was going to be right on the doorstep of a very important project that Pastor Van wanted to do. And uh, again, I'm not a reporter. I don't say whether strip clubs are good or bad. We just tell people what's happening, what impact it will have. And we let people make up their minds. And I will just say now that I am in politics, I was gratified 
that <laughs> whatever brought about the demise of that plan, that the good work that you guys are doing on that east side of the new center um, was allowed to, uh, well, let's just put it this way, that everybody uh, got to keep their pants on over there. Right. And, you know, here was our, our uh, one of our big concerns is we had a teen center, um, the spot teen center. <laughs> Um, where well, I should I say I was a city hall reporter at that time, Don. I'm sorry to answer your question. I'm sorry. See, I'm getting ready for politics. I just keep talking and don't answer a question. I was a city hall reporter. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Not the strip club guy. But I guess because <laughs> the, the decisions got made at city hall, that's how you got involved in the story. And I didn't really understand your beat. I just knew that your byline was attached to a lot of these yeah. stories. And so I and actually, these, these things didn't come up in city hall. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I knew about these things because I live and I, I love and I work in Detroit. I don't love at the strip clubs. So let's just, I don't want another correction here. <laughs> but um, but I, I knew about that what was going to be club rain because I spend a lot of time burning shoe leather in Detroit. And I think because of that, people like yourself were trying to make Detroit better knew who to contact. And so I go where people are. And, and the thing I hate the most about this pandemic is that is that I can't spend time uh, with people like we used to because that's how we learn about the city. I started out as the obituary writer at the Free Press. And I will tell you, I learned more about the history of Detroit by writing about some of our greatest citizens who had passed on. It's, it, I had no idea Highland Park was at one time the gross point of, of Michigan. It just, I'm just not that old, although I look it now. <laughs> so yeah, just one, one last thing I just wanted to clarify. We had a teen center. My big concern was not the houses, it was the teenage girls. I did not want our teenage girls being tempted by and somehow exposed to what was happening there because um, when you're working with vulnerable children or vulnerable young people, you want to protect them. And it was just too close to home. So I thank you for that. It's fine if people do what they want to do. We are adults, but I um, did not believe that that was part of a redeveloping neighborhood. So um, thank you for um, that is, the, you know, sometimes you have to remember you used to be young. And uh, we were both a little younger then. <laughs> well, you're so. aging better than I am. Let me just say that. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> All right, guys, it is time for Fresh Off the Press, news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Michigan plans to charge ex-governor Rick Snyder in Flint water scandal. Um, this is by um, Dave Edwhite and Dave Edgar at the Associated Press, um, which is, I think, shared with the um, um, Free Press. It's a newswire, so everybody newswire. picked it up. Okay, it's, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I don't really know how these things work like you all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the rookie. <laughs> But um, Rick Snyder, his health director, and other ex-officials have been told they're being charged after a new investigation of the Flint water scandal, which devastated the majority Black-led city with lead-contaminated water and was blamed for a deadly outbreak of Legionnaires' disease in 2014 and 15. Um, I think, as people recall, when Dana Nessel came to power, the first thing she did was dismiss all of the um, the the criminal charges and a lot of people were upset. Much to the dismay no of a lot of people, yeah. And they didn't trust her, but um, you know, Dana Nessel is my girl and I just knew she was gonna bring it and she did today. Um, and it's interesting that this news is breaking today because um, this news has everything to do with democracy and the theft of democracy. It never would have happened if people who people have voted for 
people who were living in the community were drinking the same brown water and smelling the same stuff. I'm not saying that they would not have voted to connect to the Flint River, although I don't think they would because it was nasty and it, there were a lot of things. What I am saying is that once that mistake was made, they would have quickly corrected back and not allow people to drink and drink and drink and drink and drink. And there was no democratic response. There was no way for people to say, this is wrong. Evidence was hidden, um, problems were looked over. And Darnell Early, who later became a, an emergency manager for Detroit Public Schools, um, presided over all of that. Um, I think that we have to look at the importance of democracy and the assault on democracy of Black people that has been um, ever since we've you know, been on, this, on these shores, we were not even treated as though we were human and not given any rights as citizens. Dred Scott decision said, in fact, that we had no rights that a white man had to obey and that we could not be citizens, whether slave or free. However, after we were freed, uh, we still struggle with that. So in 2013, the state's governor, Rick Snyder, same Rick Snyder, stripped Detroit elected government of its authority and named an emergency manager to take autocratic control over the city. And the key elements that would later mark Trump's election facilitated the state takeover and bankruptcy of Detroit, authoritarian rule by the super wealthy, a white lash against black political power, voter disenfranchisement, the gutting of workers' rights and the pillaging of public goods and institutions. And this is from the 50 year rebellion, how the US political crisis began in Detroit by Scott Kirisich. So I think that some people could say that what's happening right now on a national level was preordained in Detroit when there were people who decided that black votes did not matter. And I think we can all recall that at one point, 60% of all black people in the state of Michigan had some form of um, emergency management overseeing us. And that meant that we had our rights stripped as citizens. We had no more right, no more control over our immediate environment than our ancestors did when they could not vote. And that is um, horrifying to me. It makes me extremely angry. So let's talk about it. Do you see a parallel Orlando and ML to what's happening in DC? I see it, but I'm yeah, I, I, I really just want to bring up to the forefront that, you know, uh, the loss of democratic power and the power to elect your own representation is traumatic, particularly traumatizing for black folks in the city of Detroit. Um, and, you know, seeing um, city assets being sold or given away or leased out uh, was, you know, to met with so much anger and disappointment from, uh, you know, residents in the city, particularly residents on the east side that we spoke to every day. I do want to bring uh, to the forefront, we talk about, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, our ancestors our, as Black folks, you know, not having the opportunity to vote. And I really want to localize that and help folks realize that the right to vote for real, for real in this country for Black folks is only about 50 years old. And so you know somebody <laughs> who was born, who it would have been illegal for them to vote. My grandmother being one of them, some of my great aunts and uncles being one of them, my mother even making, making that number. And so it is not so far-fetched. We're only like five decades into this, uh, this, uh, 
ability to really be able to exercise our voting power. And I think we realize just how precious and how powerful we could be uh, in 2020 as it relates to the primary uh, presidential elections as well as the general election. We also realize how nimble and shaky this right was when we see, continue to see an all outright attack on the voting rights and the legitimacy of black votes. That said, I think that uh, this announcement uh, could not have come uh, soon enough. Uh, Governor Snyder, um, his administration was one of uh, the, the, the actors that I named last week when we talk about narrative power and this, uh, this tendency to sort of gloss over and even romanticize uh, what's happened in the past, the, the level of attention that Governor Snyder's op-ed got endorsing Joe Biden. And like, I don't understand why this isn't coming up <laughs> right now. And we're happy, you know, so um, I'm a, we should note that uh, the Associated Press did not reveal um, its sources uh, that uh, let them know that uh, Governor Snyder, as well as people in his administration, uh, were notified of charges coming at them. And so far, we uh, don't have any comment from uh, official comment from uh, Governor Snyder's uh, camp, as well uh, as Dana Nessel's uh, office. So, I, yeah, good, good points. I just want to make this hyper hyper local because my people have been in Detroit since the 1920s and the 1920s black people in Detroit did vote we did exercise political power. In fact, we exercised so much political power that we helped elect Judge Murphy to become judge. Um, Frank Murphy, Hall of Justice, yeah, we helped Frank elect Murphy. him judge. And we also helped elect him mayor before the, after that. We helped to create um, integrated trade unions in Detroit. The history of black power in this community is like none other. And so back. when you see the white lash, when, when you have people who are able to create a, a middle class, and you have people who are able to move into neighborhoods based on the amount of money they were making. Even though racism kept people out of neighborhoods, it created this tension in our community. But we had strong, long history of black leadership. The dismantling of black power is even more upsetting to me given that I'm studying for this course and I'm gonna talk about it every show. Um, That's that right, where are you teaching that? Where are you teaching that again? Columbia, my first oh, class okay. is Isn't tomorrow. it the Ivy League? Yeah, right. <laughs> You're a big timer. Right. Okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, my first class is tomorrow. But I mean, as I'm studying for this class and I understand the rich and deep history, it is even more appalling to imagine emergency management straight from people who fought for decades and were able to build for decades really the most powerful Black community in the United States. Well, and, and then of course have Mayor Kavanaugh in the 60s would not have been mayor if it wasn't for the black vote. And our current deputy mayor, Conrad Mallett Jr., his father was one of the people that helped put Jerome Kavanaugh in City Hall. And so so we have seen a lot more recently than, than mayor, uh, I should say mayor, than governor, than I think Supreme Court Justice Murphy, that the black vote has been decisive. And of course, it was no more decisive than in 1973 when, uh, when Coleman Young was elected. But, but so I, I spoke a few minutes ago about the free press and the news having fewer reporters in City Hall. And I don't say that to knock uh, the newspapers. And, and, and this, isn't, this isn't trying to shine the apple of my old employers. It's to get back to Flint because one of the reasons why things got crazy in Flint, the Flint Journal used to be an outstanding newspaper. Newspapers 
have been decimated. The reason why they had so many people in City Hall when I was there is because there were three times as many employees. The Flint Journal, I get people from Flint calling me saying, hey, can you do a story on what's going on in Flint? I'm like, I just can't be everywhere and do every story. But I think the fact that there aren't as many watchdogs keeping an eye on things, that's how things get crazy. And I have a, a real quick little Darnell Early story. Just before he got booted from DPS, I had a photographer uh, shooting surveillance video of him in Lansing. At the same time he was running our Detroit public schools or running our Detroit public schools into the ground, he was still living in Lansing. And we got video of his, his police or security driver loading his golf clubs in the back of his car so he could drive to Detroit. So emergency management is not only uh, a absolute last resort, but when you pick an emergency manager, you better pick the best one you can possibly find, just not the one who's going to do your bidding. And, and I just say that it should never be a resort. We now have a trillion dollar deficit. We have the most incompetent, corrupt president ever in the United States. Well, in, in the past hundred years, we had some really bad ones in the 19th century and I don't want, but he's terrible, right? And yet nobody is talking about stripping the right for the people who voted him to have the right to vote. In fact, they're still trying to strip our power. We didn't put him in office, y'all did, right? But whenever you have- I, bad, I didn't vote for him, I should say. I don't mean, when I say y'all, I mean, I mean the people- The royal y'all, I got you. I got yes, you. it's not, okay. I, I'm not, this is not directed at you. No, that's all um, right, I'm okay, um, I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm glad to know, and I'm glad you were able to confirm that you did not vote for him, because the rest of this is gonna go a whole lot better now that we know that. But what I mean is that <laughs> the only time, it's it's when, when our rights are seen as disposable, when we have to prove that we have the right to vote, that's when we have a problem. And that's when we don't have any power because people make really bad political decisions all of the time. And, um, you know, there have been many bad political people in power. So let's um, move on because we do have so much to talk about. Um, I want to start because um, I, I, everything you said was true. And I, I appreciate you sharing, you gave me lots of history. But we have a mayor right now who has seen his share of scandal. Um, and you're an investigative reporter and have earned your stripes and you send people everywhere. Um, what kind of investigations, who, what, what cameramen have you sent after the mayor? Because I think until Bob Carmack came and said, hey, wait a minute, he's got a mistress. Nobody was reporting it and had to be known by somebody. Um, and I read a story that you wrote in December of last year. Mayor Mike Duggan has a long way to go from his days coaching fifth grade girls in Livonia. And I saw pictures of him from high school, but I didn't see anything in there really that tied him to some of the corruption that people know he was in, in, adjacent to, if not involved in, if not responsible for. So where is the balance? Sure. So first of all, I, I did write a, a profile of Mayor Duggan that ran in December. It was a very long profile, and it was something that initially was supposed to be assessing the mayor's performance during the uh, beginning of the pandemic. And so when you read the top of the story, you'll read a lot about what he did to improve testing and to get test kits and the test center up and running. But you'll also read in there comments from Anthony Adams and Nicole Small talking about how he, he was failing on trying to make people whole on the overtaxation, um, on how um, 
and how he seemed to be disconnected from certain issues uh, like water shutoffs and things like that. So there was there was balance there in that the mayor did get credit for getting the testing center open and getting tests when other people couldn't. But there's also uh, discussing the issue of of uh, how is he going to deal with people who were, were treated poorly by the uh, city's assessor's office. Now, he'll tell you, and I think there's some truth to it, that as soon as he came into office, he got those assessments adjusted. Um, but, uh, but that story evolved into something where it became sort of, this is your life, Mike Duggan. And we did talk about things such as the uh, allegations of corruption in the McNamara administration, and that there were some people who were convicted. Wasn't there uh, like one sentence convict, uh, committed to that though? I just went, well, there, one sentence there were sort only, of said. There were only three low level people who were convicted. But, that, but there was something like $244 million. I mean, it was a lot of money and a whole lot of people. And, 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 and the investigation ended when McNamara died, didn't it? I mean, it was a big thing. I remember this. The uh, FBI was involved. And so I know that um, Butch Kelly or whatever um, went to prison. He's the only person who went to prison. But this was a big uh, thing. Uh, yeah, Wilborn Kelly, his Wilborn. wife, and another guy. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, so I didn't do that investigation. That happened just when I returned to Detroit. Um, so I can only rely on the historical record. Uh, it was a major uh, federal public corruption probe of Wayne County government, and in the end, they only did get three convictions. So. That's one of those things that they got 100 convictions, I would have written a lot more about it. But when you have a major but, investigation, I kind of feel like if you're disappointed with the outcome of that investigation, the, the weight uh, falls on the feds who did it, not little old me who was writing obituaries at the time and well, can only rely on the historical record. Well, I, and I'm not really disappointed with the outcome. I'm just pointing out that somehow that feels as though it's really super significant. And then in, 2000, in 1999, there was another scandal regarding Detroit Public Schools and no bid contracts for construction work in Detroit public schools that Mayor Duggan was also over. And there were no convictions there, um, but it kind of ties real closely to what's happening in the investigations right now with the demolition contractors. And so if you look at contractors at Wayne County Airport and contractors with DPS and now contractors today, it seems as though if I can tie that together somebody with your investigative chops could possibly thread the needle. And so I'm not saying that I know that he's guilty of anything. It's just that when I look at investigation, I look at how people are, um, I wonder if there's not a soft peddling of that story. And I think that sits at the heart of where a lot of black people feel. Sure. Because here you have a mayor who actually came out of the same house, the house of McNamara, you know, Jennifer Granholm, Mike Duggan, Killer Kilpatrick all came out of the same house of McNamara. And a lot of the same guys, a lot of the exact same contractors are working with both of them and are still working with both of them. Is this bigger than Kwame Kilpatrick, who may have taken it to an extreme perhaps, but isn't this something about what's happening in our government and how some of the corporations have behaved over the time over the years? Because I think that's the way a lot of Detroiters feel and don't want to feel as though Mike Duggan is going to be less accountable for some of these relationships than other mayors. So this is a distinction that, that people in journalism um, would understand, but I think the general public doesn't understand it. And that's okay because we, we are professionals. And so we have terms that we use in the same way that engineers use terms. And I don't know what a load bearing wall is and I don't know what, uh, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what a drag coefficient is. I'm just not good with the sciences. 
But mm-hmm. the story I wrote about Mike Duggan was a, a profile that focused on how he's done in this current crisis. And so it kind of did an overview of his life. I would not call it an investigation. And in fact, I have not worked in City Hall as an investigative reporter. I will tell you, I did look into the make your date situation where uh, the city supported a a not-for-profit that was run by a woman with whom the mayor had a relationship, a relationship he declined to specify and she declines to specify. And I'll tell you why why I covered that, (coughs) excuse me, through, through Bob Carmack's actions is because I didn't see any city money misspent. I didn't see anybody getting enriched. Yeah. And there were many, there were many rumors about Kwame Kilpatrick having affairs. (coughs) And I'll tell you, I don't condone that kind of activity, Mm -hmm. but I feel that's between you, your partner and your God. And if you screw somebody else, (coughs) that's your business. But if you screw the taxpayers, that's my business. Well, the Detroit when I looked Auditor at Make Your General, Date, I didn't see the taxpayers getting screwed. But the Detroit Auditor, Gen- Auditor General found some wrongdoing and um, had some concerns. And I believe that that has in, been in a, referred in a to the state. Well, not yes. just the cover-up, not just the cover-up, but the fact that um, some dollars that could have been spent on some other programs were allocated to this program. And I don't want to debate that too much because this is not my issue. I think what my issue is, is that there are investigative journalists who have investigated over taxation, who have investigated contracts with demolition, who have investigated make your date. And it doesn't feel as though you, the bulldog investigator who has really you know, taking it to the man has done much with a mayor who has these same vulnerabilities. And so I'm not saying that Mayor Duggan is worse, bad. I, I'm not the jury. I'm saying that as an investigative reporter, if you are an African-American person in Detroit, you kind of want to see the same level of diligence when it comes to that from the guy who helped do that with Kwame Kilpatrick. Now you've seen um, Kat Stafford and you've seen um, Christine McDonald do a great job really digging in. But I think people want to know that you don't just see him as a friend, that you don't just see him as a good guy, but that you understand the mistrust that other people may have. And if you're right, I mean, good journalism does make mayors accountable. And therefore, we're hoping that as a journalist, there's some fairness there. Sure. Um, well, Don, I wanna, I want to move on, though. If I could just real quickly, uh I just want to go back to say, and this is answering a question Orlando had earlier, I think. Why do I want to go to City Hall? Because Mm. I want to put a watchdog in City Hall. I want to put somebody working in City Hall every damn day. And at the same time that other people were investigating Mayor Kilpatrick, they were assigned to City Hall. I'm sort of like the guy who worked at the restaurant as a chef. And then maybe I became uh, uh, the guy who orders all the food. I can't be ordering all the food and cooking all the food too. When I went to Fox two, that's when mayor Duggan came into office. I was responsible for covering the whole state. That's when I exposed the marijuana money. That's when I exposed the Supreme court court justice. And since I've been at the free press, in addition to working on this mayor Duggan profile, I've done those Gabe Leland stories of people uh, that we were talking about. I've done investigations that exposed the background of the ring, the alleged ringleader of the Governor Whitmer kidnap plot. In fact, I have a big story coming out tomorrow on that. I mean, 
just because I haven't been making Mayor Duggan's life hell, it doesn't mean I haven't been doing my job. My job is just on a much bigger scale. I'm, I'm a one man band. I will right. also say this, though. I have also done investigations when Mayor Duggan was running for mayor. I revealed his ties to the Kilpatrick administration, which mo most people weren't aware of. I revealed all the corporate money and all the fat cats who were funding his write-in campaign, which no one else had revealed until I had done that. I uh, did a story on how Mayor Duggan was comfortable keeping the police commission somewhat reined in under the emergency manager laws. And after that story, the mayor changed his policy. I did look into Make Your mm -hmm. Date, but I did not see corruption there. So we followed the story as it became a public matter. And no one has covered Bob Carmack's lawsuits against the city of Detroit more closely than I have. So while I'm all over the state, and I've also spent a year and a half doing all kinds of public corruption stuff in Macomb County, um, right. I've done my best, but I, I just, I appreciate the confidence. I appreciate the compliment that I can be everywhere all the time, seeing well, everything and getting everything. But uh, I'm just one little old guy trying well, to keep yeah. his head up with a big, sketchy state. And and mm -hmm. if I spend all that time on Mayor Duggan, somebody would be saying, why don't you spend all that time on Rick Snyder and Flint? I just can't win for losing. But I'll tell you right. what, I'm doing my best. And when people tell me about things, maybe, maybe Donna Givens calls me about a strip club that's going up down the street. Sometimes I try and do that when I could do other stories because I just, I have to do the best I can and not everybody's going to be satisfied, but I am glad and I'm gratified that people in Detroit expect accountability and expect answers. And so I accept your criticism. I offer this, this context, but, uh, but yes, as I said earlier, we need more scrutiny of public officials in city hall and it's Kwame Kilpatrick's bad luck that there was a lot of reporters there because the news business was in better shape. And perhaps it's Mayor Duggan's good luck that things are a little leaner. But I should also say my report in which I got confidential FBI report said there's no FBI investigation into Mayor Duggan. And the, the feds have said they don't plan to indict any public officials on demolition and they have subpoena power. So if the feds can't get inside those vaults, I mean, I, I don't have the secret I, recipe for Coke or for the kernels. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you do. I do well, want to no, talk no, and about I appreciate Raquel. it, Don. I really appreciate it. I do want it. to talk about Raquel Castaneda Lopez because sure. um, there was a big story. You broke a story about um, a um, woman who came, the first Latino city council person comes from a low-income family and um, her home, as you reported, was blighted. And you wanted to know whether or not her, whether she contributed to the blight in the city of Detroit. Um, and that was a big story. And sure. I think it was personally embarrassing. There no laws were broken. There was no allegation. Well, that city ordinances were broken, but. Okay, city ordinances. The code. Um, yeah. And, 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 and so, um, and, and, you know, there's probably low-income people all over the city of Detroit or people who come from low-income families who are um, violating that code. Um, but have you also, but, but, you know, then it seems like the Illiches, who are some of the big slumlords, um, you had a tweet <laughs> where you were mocking people for complaining about Illich blood tax breaks because they're eating $5 pizza. And uh, they're slumlords. And they sit on property and they sit on property and help property values go down. Um, and so I guess my question is, who's the bigger issue here? They got, you know, how many millions of dollars in tax incentives and tax breaks there? We built a stadium for them. Um, sure. 
and they're not paying taxes on it. So I guess my question is, who's the biggest somewhere? Because I think there sometimes can be this emphasis on this person and not on the big picture. And yep. when I look at somebody who's fighting for low-income people in low-income neighborhoods, it seems to me Raquel Castaneda-Lopez is doing an outstanding job. Um, she's got the Detroiters Bill of Rights, the People Bill of Rights, and she stands up. When I look at Illich's, I think they don't. So when you want to hold people accountable, I just want to know um, what that looks like. But I can tell you, honestly, sure. that a lot of people who were people of color were offended by that story and yep. really felt as though it was picking on this woman unnecessarily. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to address that because it's something that I would expect most people to, uh, to, to, to not see the, the role that I play. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a watchdog reporter, which means my uh, focus is on holding public officials accountable. Um, the Illiches are not public officials. Raquel Castaneda-Lopez is. Um, but before we get into that, let me also say, when I left the Free Press in 2012, I was doing some award-winning investigations into the Fakano administration. When I went to Fox 2, Charlie LaDuff was doing some award-winning investigations into the Fakano administration. There are not enough reporters at one news organization to have two reporters doing the same stories. So I stopped doing Fakano stories when I was at Fox 2 because Charlie LaDuff was already doing an outstanding job. At the time, the tax breaks and the deals were given to the Illiches and, and to Dan Gilbert, Charlie LaDuff and I were both walking at Fox 2. He was doing the Illich stories and he was doing the, uh, he was doing the Gilbert stories or, or some stories about downtown development. Fox 2 did not want and did not need two reporters doing the same thing. It's sort of like if you got weeds in the garden and the grass needs to be cut, well, you both don't need to be pulling weeds. Somebody get the weeds and somebody cut the damn grass. So Charlie was pulling the weeds and I was cutting the grass. Now with Raquel Castaneda-Lopez, who uh, I've known since she's gotten elected, I've made many opportunities to work with her. When I started my charity hockey game in Southwest Detroit at Clark Park, which is directly across the street from her house, she dropped the puck at the very first game. And I was very excited about that relationship. But when I've had to go talk to her about things, I noticed that her house... Uh, was in terrible disrepair. Uh, I don't know that she comes from a low-income family. I believe her dad was a postal worker, so I'd say middle class, but, but we're not here to debate her family. I'm not here to talk about anybody's family. But I, I do want to say that that is a house where based on the median income in that neighborhood, she would be at the very, very high end with her city salary. And her home was, and I, I don't want to be cruel here, it was an eyesore. Meanwhile, her neighbor's homes who are getting by on much less money were immaculate. They kept up their homes. One of the things that I think is really important to remember is you don't have to be a millionaire to take trash off your porch. You don't have to be a billionaire to make sure that if you have old lumber and junk laying in front of your house, that you put that in the backyard instead of in the front yard. And it wasn't me who said that her city, uh, that her house was a blight on the city. It was the city code enforcement who had written that property up for violating city ordinance. And so the reason why we looked at that, first of all, I looked at her because she's a public official. Second of all, she has been very vocal and very aggressive in fighting blight. Yet she herself is responsible for one of the most blighted properties in her neighborhood. To her credit, she has fixed it up. That house is looks very, very nice. But she has 
she has a house that looks like it's fallen down across the street from a city park where kids play. I, I think we'd expect anybody to fix that up. And we certainly expect our public officials to be held accountable to the same standard as our neighbors. And I would argue they should be held to a higher standard because they are supposed to be our leaders. And I would argue I, that villages who get millions of dollars of taxpayers' money, even though they are not public officials, they are operating on the public dime at a much higher level. And, and Charlie Ledeff was doing that, those stories. But, so. but that, where, where are the stories now? Because when I looked, I saw a story that you wrote where you kind of said, hey, the mayor says, or I, I think it feels as though there's a soft peddling of what's happening with the mill Illiches and that it's not really seen in the same way that some of us feel. I just had a community meeting today. The Illiches were supposed to purchase the um, Tsunami Center from NSO as part of their District Detroit, which doesn't exist. And then the NSO was going to plow that money into building. There, a new wait, home. there are signs. There are District Detroit signs. It does. And that's exist. about it. And that's about it. And they got how many tax breaks? Got money from the public schools to do that. And so. You know, and it wasn't just tax breaks, they got tax incentives plowed into them. And so I guess my thing is that we got to look at scale and we've got to look at who are the biggest slumlords. The biggest slumlord in Southwest Detroit has and will always be Manny Maroon until that until he sold it to the Ford Motor Company and then they got the tax incentives for that. The, 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 that was the biggest thing and people complained about that forever. So I think that yes, she had a house that was blighted. And quite frankly, we have a bunch of houses like that are blighted and yes, yeah, you should fix it up. But it's I think it's not blighted that, anymore. Well, I understand that, but I think it was humiliating. And I think that also for Detroiters, it felt like that was that that created some issues for a lot of Detroiters I, that I talked to. Sure. So well, anyway. Donna, let, let me just tell you that mm -hmm. I'm a Detroiter too and have been for over 21 years. And, and I will just also tell you if you see that story, we spoke to her neighbors. And let me tell you, neighbors are very reluctant to criticize neighbors on the record, on camera, particularly when those neighbors are city officials and her neighbors told us in no uncertain terms that the condition of that house upset them and they took very nice care of their house. And by the way, she had another blighted house down the street, but let's just stay on this one. But it was her neighbors who were upset and there were people who, whose children played at Clark Park who found that to be troubling. So, so I, I do wanna, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge that Detroit is, we are a very diverse population in terms of, of thought and not just in terms of race and class and religion. And there were Detroiters who did not like that story. And there were Detroiters who said to themselves, thank goodness somebody's finally doing something to get my block cleaned up. And that somebody who has a lot of money who isn't fixing their house up is being held to the same standard that I am because I don't have a lot of money and my house looks great. I also think that uh, we have to, when we're telling those kind of stories, to add a little bit of nuance and, uh, you know, ca cast a wider net when we talk about the blight issue in the city of Detroit, looking at some folks who are middle income uh, by salary, but, you know, not necessarily middle income living 
um, also the fact that there are so many people who would love the opportunity to uh, fix up their homes but really don't have uh, the resources. Uh, community development block grant money for home repair resources have essentially dried up within the last decade. And it is uh, laborious and cost prohibitive for a lot of folks, even folks who make a decent salary to afford uh, or have the opportunity to fix up their homes. And so uh, in addition to uh, highlighting the councilwoman, because you know that's your job, I think, I think what could have rounded that story out, I think it was a missed opportunity of the larger issue of blight in the city and how it is not uh, a failure of personal responsibility on part of many citizens who live in blighted uh, homes, but uh, you know, a failure in systems when we talk about the lack of help that uh, residents have when it comes to maintaining the beautiful housing stock that we have here um, in the city of Detroit. Uh, you know, just just my just my thoughts. I do have a question though sure. for you. In Orlando, if I could just on that point, yeah. and I don't want to turn this into ML versus Raquel. I, I admire yeah. a lot of what she does. If I'm elected to council, I hope to work for her with her on issues that we both care about and think are in the best interest of Detroiters. But some of the problem with that house, and again, I know that house because I've been doing things at Clark Park for years, it was just crap left on the porch for years. Mm -hmm. Things that just need to be taken to the curb. And, 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 and uh, you know, so, so listen, I appreciate it. If you no, don't yeah, have money, I understand that, you can't that put case. a new roof on, but you can make sure your garbage goes out and then it goes back in the back when the garbage has been picked up. These are the things that yeah. nobody, no matter how much money we have, we can do to make our neighborhoods better and that we can show respect for our for our neighbors. I want to talk about your candidacy for uh, the District 4 City Council seat. Oh, yeah. That, that's currently. <laughs> Forgot about that's currently, that. I'm running yeah, for something. That's, <laughs> that's currently I thought I was running for my life but, a minute ago there, but. Oh, uh, no. Well, you know. <laughs> no, no. Donna would be a great. This is great. Donna would be a great addition to any newsroom. I'm just saying, like, there are some people who belong in newsrooms that are just, like, misplaced. Donna's one of those. <laughs> and listen, those anything I bring you, I'm bringing you what I hear on the streets. So sure. if you hear it from me, you hear it from me. People the streets be talk. talking. People, this is street talking. Listen, I'm, I'm going to put it out there. A lot of times we keep our things and we're very polite people, right? We don't really say what's on our mind. If you're going to change people's minds, they need to hear you respond to these questions. And Absolutely. Tough. So I'm not going to, I don't soft pedal, but it's not because I'm trying to be hard. I am really trying to speak on behalf of the people who give me voice and pay my salary and it's what we hear. And I just don't want to, to, to sidestep the issue around housing affordability and also what, what money looks like. When you come from large extended families and you're taking care of folks and you have a whole lot of debt, money looks a whole lot different than when you don't have those responsibilities. So I don't know what kind of other responsibilities. I think sometimes people are just dealing with a whole lot of stuff. And so I think it's fine, it's a story, but I just, I, I just remember that having, and I heard about this from other um, reporters. So I'm not, it's not just sure. from people on the streets, but other people who work in the news also were a little concerned about that emphasis. And again, um, felt like it might've been a little bit um, un unnecessary, but Orlando wants to talk about district four. And so do I, because yeah. the really was people- She's a resident. Yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate I'm a resident that. of district four and people in district four want to know what you will do, I watchdog, right? But what is your vision for community and how would you fix it up? Well, 
one of the things that that's been successful for me both as a reporter and as somebody who does charitable endeavors is uh is strategic partnerships and to me if you represent district four and you're not working with donna then you are not representing district four very well and so one of the things when i when i when i listened to the podcast and i heard some of your concerns about me i thought whoa 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 this is somebody who I expect to be a partnership with. And if we, if we, uh, if we're not talking to each other, we're talking past each other, we got to fix that right away. And, and I, I, I do want to hear what people on the street are saying. Now also don't forget people on the street said, and they say to this day, there's a party at the Manoogian mansion. And I've never reported that because I've never, <laughs> because I've never believed that. And I spent a lot of time investigating it. And, and I think the mayor appreciates that I've said from the beginning and to this day that there was no party at the Manoogian Mansion. So let's get the hell off of that now, please. And I'm sorry I brought it up. Just to say, though, that there's a. Hello? Uh oh. Uh -oh. It, it seems as if we have. Uh, no, it seems as if we have lost Emil. I think his connection is. Uh, is bad and he, so yeah he'll be back in a second yeah, i'm sure he'll, he'll he'll definitely be back but you know don i really want to uh you know continue this discussion around uh you know just character framing versus policy framing and i think what the miss was and what i was trying to convey and i really want our listeners to hear what i was trying to convey when i commented on the recoil castaneda lopez story was that there was a missed opportunity to tell the story of so many detroiters who are living in blighted properties not by choice not by choice and i think that there's this misplaced um critique when we talk about personal responsibility in the city of Detroit and putting that onus on people who can't afford it when more than half uh, or almost half of our population qualify for the poverty tax exemption, right? And so these are folks that, these are poor folks, and I know we don't like to say that, who are now tasked with having the personal responsibility to be able to afford $10,000 roofs and $7,000 porches and things like that. And I think that the, you know, the drying up of federal funds for those uh, resources is a story that needs to be told. But it looks like ML is- Here he's coming back. It he's looks like back. he's you know back with us. Yay, come on. <laughs> it looks like he's back with us. So here we go. Okay. So I have to tell you this. I don't know when I cut out, but and I don't want to be conspiracy guy, but right when I started saying there was no Manoogian Mansion party rumor, my internet <laughs> connection went down. So that was it. That's where you left off. <laughs> that does not mean there was a party. That's just coincidence. Okay. Let me be clear. I've said from the beginning and I'll say to my dying day, there was no party because I've seen no evidence of it, but, but it's just to say that there's a lot of, there's a lot of word on the street. It doesn't necessarily mean it's all true, but, but, but I, I want to get back to Donna's point because I think it's crucial. Um, strategic partnerships. Uh, you know, we know we don't have the money in City Hall to do everything everybody would like, but we know there are people in the community and elsewhere who are doing things that we need to have done. And it's identifying those people and bringing them together. One of the big supporters of my charity game in, in Clark Park in Southwest Detroit is, is the Eastside Youth Sports Foundation about as far yeah. from Southwest Detroit as could possibly be. But they see the value in that. They understand that we're all connected. So, I mean, while I would love to represent District 4, and I, I don't take it. And they support ECN as well. And, yeah, and, the and I, don't, yep. I don't take it uh, as a given that I'm even going to get through the primary. I mean, I've, I've given up my job to do this. I'm putting it all on the line, and I'm going to work harder than anybody to make this happen. 
but the work doesn't stop. So let me stop. ask you this, Emil, why now? Why, why now? now? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, one reason I have to tell you is uh, I'm an old dude. I'm 53. And I've been doing journalism for 28 years, holding people accountable. And, and I have to tell you that, uh, that when we talk about accountability, it's not just on the reporters. People in City Hall need to be asking some of the questions that Donna's asking or Orlando's asking. And I don't hear those questions being answered. Somebody needs to ask them. I'm a professional. I'm an expert at answering, asking those questions. But the other reason is about five years ago, I started this charity hockey game to support the Clark Park Coalition. And it's one of the most gratifying things I've done uh, in my professional life. I'm also on the executive board of East English Village Neighborhood Association. I mean, I've been cutting the grass in East English Village forever, but now I'm actually on the board and hearing more about what's going on in the neighborhood. I've been a school commission member. I've been a coach with Eagle Sports at Baldock Park. And I've gotten to a point in my life where a lot of the things I do that make me feel like I'm making a difference, they take up a lot of my life, but I'm doing them on the side. And I want to make that the focus of what I'm doing. I want to make helping. So, so again, I, I want to get back to this. You know, why wasn't I doing more stuff in City Hall? Because with Fox, I was covering the whole state. I want to devote what time I have left and what energy I have left to the city of Detroit, to making this neighborhood and this city the kind that my daughters will be able to raise their families in. And they're getting to an age where they're going to be thinking about things like that. It's been a wonderful place for us. I want it to be as good as it can possibly be for them and hopefully someday for our grandkids. And I don't wanna to go to the board meetings in the evening. I don't wanna cut the grass when I can sneak in the time. I don't wanna sort of cheat the boss out of a few hours here and there to put on a charity hockey game and to help kids. I want that to be my job. And I also want the work I do when I see something wrong to tell people something's wrong and somebody needs to do something about it. We talked about something early in the show that's wrong that nobody's done anything about. I want to be in a place where I say, when I ask you, what are we doing about this? Because it's wrong, that people feel compelled to answer me. And not just because they think I'm going to jump out of the bushes to ask them with the camera, but because it's my job and it's their job to answer. And if they feel like they don't have to answer, well, I might feel that I don't have to vote for things that they care about. So this is about trying to do the work that I've been doing in a different way, with higher stakes, in a place where instead of sitting at the edge of the table, I've got a seat at the table and where I'm learning more, you know, like I said, obituary writer, I learned so much about the city. And when you're a reporter, you learn so much about the city. When you're a public official, you learn even more about the, the city because when people have a problem, the first person they call is their city councilman. And I wanna be the one who answers that question. And I wanna be able to try and find solutions to those problems. And I, I, you know, I just, I, I've done as much as I can as a reporter and I just feel like, like there's more that I can give. There's more that I can do. And this is the best way that I can think of to do it. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, uh, the more I hear from people, the more I'll get better at figuring out exactly what we need to do. I got some ideas, but I want to hear what people have to say, because I don't think I have all the answers. The answers are out there, but my job is to collect them, to evaluate them, to put them together, and then turn those answers into action. So that's... Um... And we, sp we spent a lot of time talking about individuals, right? And um, there are individuals, and I actually believe that in my capacity, I have to work with everybody who's in government. So I have questions and I hope that I, I think newspapers have a role, news reporters have a role, I have a role. Um, but I think that what we don't talk about all of the time is systems, right? And institutions and structures 
that create these problems. Um, and I think this is what Orlando was getting at is the issue around home repair. Take, you know, um, Councilman, Councilman Lopez out of it, Castaneda Lopez out of it. We have a home repair issue in our city. We have a water issue. We have a tax issue. We have all of these issues. We have um, this mindset that there's not enough money really to do everything that we need to do to help the people. And then we spend $200 million assembling land for Fiat Chrysler. And we give the people three months to figure it out. Not a whole lot of time. We rush it through and we say, hey, we've got to do this. And so some people are like, wait a minute, I don't understand. We can forgive future tax money from a stadium, but not future tax money from people who owe money. Now, I think we're doing a better job of that. And I will give the mayor credit for trying to figure some things out, but we had a whole lot of people lose their homes in the process. So for me, I'm interested in what kind of structural solutions do you think we need change at a structural level, or are we gonna keep on doing more with less at the neighborhood level? Well, first of all, I, I don't I don't think that it's sustainable to always do more with less because at some time you're trying to do something with nothing. And then what do you got? Um, but I do see things like uh, the tool library on East Warren. That's something that's being done by the community with a little help from some nonprofits to provide people with things that they need to repair their homes. Anybody who's tried to work on their car, particularly a, a newer car, you can't even change the oil because you don't have the right tools. So if you want to fix your house up, you need, you need certain things. You need wheelbarrows, you need hammers, you need lumber, you need saws and things like the tool library can provide us that where we can get those resources on our own. But, um, but you know, the Fiat Chrysler deal, I'll, I'll tell you, that's a deal I'd like to know a lot more about. And I think as a council member with access to this material, access to material that's protected under negotiations, it's not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. I think I have a lot better grasp on what's going on about that as it's going on as a member of council. The scrutiny that I bring to deals, you will get a lot sooner in the process if I'm on the 13th floor. But, but I do think a lot of this, and, and I do think the mayor's done a little better job of this than previous mayors, comes from engaging with the community and saying, what are your problems? What can you, we help you with? What resources can we pull together both as a city putting your tax dollars back into your community, but also leveraging our relationships with nonprofits. I think we've seen the nonprofit and the foundation community just become real heroes during the, the pandemic. The computers and the internet access to, went to our kids from DPS because Wendell Anthony and some other people said we need to do something about this. I think the mayor and council not only have access to the levers of government, but there's a bully pulpit there. There's a way to mobilize people. You have to listen before you speak and you have to hear. It's not just a matter of waiting for somebody to stop talking so you can talk, but you have to hear. And then you need to take that back and see what you can do with it. And, and um, you know, what, what in our city is going the wrong way? What processes are not as efficient as they could be? I have to tell you, I, I need to have a much closer look at those things. Um, it does feel like garbage is being picked up better. I'm glad to see bulk pickup back. But I also have to tell you, I wish that was being done by city workers as opposed to contractors. I would like these jobs to come back to Detroiters. In my neighborhood, shortly after I moved back, Governor Engler and yet another FU to the people of Detroit took away residency. That gutted our neighborhood. We lost not just police, but we lost 
city workers with good paying jobs who had families in this neighborhood that supported both our Catholic school and our public school. And I think anything we can do to encourage those people to move back to the city of Detroit, meaning city workers and others who want to raise their families here and are going to stabilize neighborhood because, you know, I mean, politics, I think it's, it's the root of the word in Greek or Latin is people. And that's what it is. It's about people. It's about bringing people together and finding out what they need and how we can deliver it to them. I mean, I know we need some turnarounds on East Outer Drive paved. People keep telling me that's a county thing. So I guess <laughs> I got to hammer on the county for that. But but we, we know that fight county road right. versus city well, road. Yeah, you know, yeah. ML with, with seven minutes I'm left. I'm the East Outer about... Drive street rep too. So believe me, people yeah. say, what is the city going to do? I'm like, we got to ask, what are the county going to do? Yeah. Yeah. What about seven minutes left? I want to ask you about uh, some of the social justice movements that have uh, taken place in Detroit, particularly uh, last summer in the wake of the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor murder. And, you know, activists have called uh, for uh, defunding the police um, and the reallocation of funds is really what that means. It doesn't mean what it sounds like. I know you know that. And right now the city is entering into its budgeting process. And I want to know uh, from you, your thoughts around, uh, you know, community input around budget, uh, budgeting priorities, uh, the call from a lot of activists who had 100 consecutive days worth of demonstrations around taking a look at our uh, police budget, particularly around some of the uh, paramilitary spending that is happening, as well as the fund for settlements. Uh, what do you what do you what do you think around what do you what, what are your thoughts around city budgeting and uh, taking a look at the police department? Sure. I, be, before we get to that, I just want to take ten seconds to to tell people about our George Floyd. It, it, it was a guy named Gene Bell. He was pulled over in Southfield. And he was pulled out of his car. The cops tackled mm -hmm. him. They arrested him. I did that story for Fox Two in September of 2020. Uh, mm -hmm long before what happened in Minneapolis and, and things like that concern me, not only because it, it's, we just can't have people acting like that, but because if that lawsuit ends up going against Southfield, it's going to cost Southfield money they could use to make better police services. My concern with the, the police in Detroit is that we need more and better police. What we do is we train a lot of police who immediately leave for other communities. They get their certification, they go to their academy on our dime, and then they split for the suburbs. So we're constantly replenishing our police department. What we need is police that are in touch with the community, police that know that there's a light on at a store at 10 o'clock at night. Well, there's never a light on a store at 10 o'clock at night. And they know that because they're in that neighborhood every night, walking a beat, getting to know people that know when they see somebody maybe fooling around on the corner, that it's not because they're about to cause trouble because they know that kid. And that's just a kid. That's, that's, that's how he has fun. We need to, I think, take a serious look at a lot of the work that president Obama did before he left office in terms of reforming policing, this militarization of police. He, he said, we're putting an end to that. We are not going to sell this ordinance to local police departments. Donald Trump, of course, immediately said, we'll give you everything you want. And, uh, and then, by the way, if you can't get a gun at home, you know, go get one yourself. Um, we need to we need to 
to take some of that and put it into action. And I, I hope that President Biden will take some of that work that's already been done and said, you know, we've got the blueprint. Now let's build it. Um, I'm always concerned about the cost of bad policing. When I was in City Hall, we did stories all the time about how this, the police department spent millions of dollars that it didn't have to spare to pay for lawsuits because police were doing things like chasing people without their lights on, without their sirens on and getting into accidents because police who were abusing citizens were not removed from the force. And so they would constantly be not only harming the public, but they would be costing taxpayers millions of dollars that we needed to improve our police department. So I think a lot of it, it comes down to human resources, making sure we have police who are properly trained, who have the proper perspective, the proper uh, philosophy, and, and that we also have, so, so defunding, you know, that it was a poor term that everybody got hung up on. I prefer to think of it as reforming police, but, but I, I think domestic disputes are the most dangerous police run that cops get. They all hate them. Now, if we can deal with those sorts of things with a crisis counselor, either with the police, because I don't think we want to send somebody in a dangerous situation who's not protected, but, but I think we need to approach the way we engage with the public differently and we need to stop sending the police into situations where everybody's already mad. We need to do more to try and help people get to a, a, a situation where they can either get the help they need um, to resolve their own problems and avoid those situations. And one of the things that really concerns me is mental health, particularly among our youth, because if kids are having trouble, they're gonna act out and they're gonna get in trouble. And then once they get a collar, then that's on their record. So it's going to affect their credit rating. It's going to affect their ability to get employed. And it's just the whole notion of if we arrest people and lock them up, everything will be better. It doesn't work. It does, we need to look at the whole thing. And it's more than dollars and cents. Money is obviously critical, but I think we really need to evaluate the situations we're sending police in. And we need to find out if there's a way to, uh, to make them more what they're supposed to be, which is police, excuse me, peace officers and not warriors. Right, so I, I, we just have a couple minutes left. And I do wanna get a couple, I have some things. I, I wanna point out that when people say defund the police, they're not just talking about reform. In fact, there are a lot of people who believe that the corruption cannot be reformed, that um, the police are infiltrated with white supremacists and people who have no love for black people in the community and the disparity between what you saw in DC and also what you see in the streets of urban communities could not be greater in terms of how the police respond. And there's also people who believe that there is too much money spent on policing and that money is drains the public coffer. So that money cannot be spent on other things like mental health services and recreation programs for young people. So there's the jury's out. And I think there's a, just a big debate that probably does still need to happen on that. But I think that the um, nostalgic view of who police are does not necessarily cross over to all populations of people because there's some people who see the police and immediately get alarmed because of their interactions that happen over the years. And they've always been that way. There's never this great time where the beat cop was my friend and he walked hand in hand with me and I felt safe. Um, and, and there are many people who point out the, the historical roots of policing. But I have a question because you covered two things recently. One of them was the um, Detroit Will Breathe protest. 
And the other one was the counting of the votes at LCA. And the police were very active and present in both things. What was your impression of how they performed their duties? Ooh, um, I, I think you mean the TCF center, but but I, I know you, you mean- uh, Oh, yeah, so the TCF, you're election. right, I got that right. wrong, yeah. Sure. No, 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 it, it, people make that, it, that's a problem with initials. These guys who go by their initials, what's wrong with them? These, exactly. It's all these MLs. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, um, you know, the the, uh, the Black Lives Matter protest, Detroit will breathe. Um, I, I, I think I was concerned about the the conflict on Gratiot Avenue. Um, the police said that they had intelligence. Chief Craig told me he had intelligence that indicated that that march was was about to get out of hand. Um, I pressed him to provide that evidence. Uh, he did not provide that. He said, "Trust me." Well, I'm I'm not a real good guy at at trusting folks. I like people to prove it. But um, that was a night where I think things got out of hand. And we saw just a night later when marchers violated the curfew and things didn't get out of hand. So I think we have to learn from things like that. How but, did they get out of hand on Gratiot? Uh, it's just marchers um, uh, were marching till 845 on an eight o'clock curfew. And then police basically said, it's time to go home. They didn't go home. And then they decided to start making arrests. Um, it, it felt to me like as someone who was marching with people, and let me tell you, that night was hot as Hades. If, if, if DPD had let the marchers keep going, they would have gotten to Eastland Mall and we could have said, you know, uh, it, it's your problem now, Harper Woods. And I think people would have just said, we're done for the night and, and gone home. So uh, perhaps the chief knows something I don't know. Uh, he declined to share that with me. I would really like to know that because maybe I'm wrong but it did feel like we probably should just, you know, kind of let people get tired out and go home. Um, but at the TCF center, so I was outside uh, for a spell and then I was inside after the windows had been boarded up or card boarded up because uh, the, um, the uh, Trump Pence supporters were getting out of hand. I thought the police we call them a mob at Bruce Detroit, but, but you're being generous. Go yeah, for it. Yeah, so so I'm I when you're wrong, I'll I'll tell you. So I'm not telling you you're wrong, okay? <laughs> but um, but I was in the TCF center till 4:30 in the morning on Thursday. I was the mm -hmm. last reporter in there, and there were times when I was wondering why am I still in here? But I stayed in there because I thought someone who was impartial needed to bear witness to what was going on and what was not going on. And the way I saw the police perform inside the TCF center is when people got out of line, primarily Republican vote challengers, they were escorted out. In fact, I was led to believe that one of them was actually charged with the crime. So I thought the police performed well, what I witnessed at the TCF center. Again, there were things going on up at the street level and then down in the basement. I couldn't be everywhere, but I thought DPD did a good job on that night to preserve the vote and, and they wanted to go home too. And here's the other thing with, with this, I mean, we're paying them a lot of overtime to babysit people who should know better. You know, I mean, I wish a lot of those people who were getting crazy at TCF Center would have just gone home. We could have saved a lot of money and a lot of trouble. Maybe they could but, have zip tied them and put them in the <laughs> paddy wagon like they did people walking down um, grass shit. Um, yeah, so so I was I was in the basement for, for most of, of that. Um, and, and I did go back the next couple of nights and I didn't see people from either side being arrested. But But I will tell you one funny thing that I heard, and I don't think it's funny. I think it's actually a positive thing. 
um, at one of the nights uh, where the police were kind of keeping an eye on both sides after the vote. Uh, one of the police who we saw a lot during um, the uh, marches called me over and he said, uh, hey, I need to tell you something. We had a meeting and now we're going to have uh, we're going to have ML arrests. And I said, first of all, leave me out of it. Um, you want to name something after me, name the cure to a disease, but uh, I don't want to be associated with the rest. And I said, well, what is that anyway? He said, well, you asked at a press conference why police didn't offer protesters an opportunity to surrender and just basically say, we're going to occupy this space. If you want to arrest us, we'll come peacefully. You can arrest us and do what you got to do. And, uh, and the chief kind of laughed at you, which he did. Um, and he said, but we, we, we now have a policy where we are going to offer people an opportunity to surrender before we surge into a crowd to start arresting people. And, and I, I was glad to hear that because uh, I wrote extensively about the clash on Woodward Avenue, which seemed to be more uh, violent than any other encounter between police and protesters. But I have to say, I can't take credit for ML arrest because it was really Tristan Taylor's idea. And he asked me, why don't they let us peacefully surrender. And for people who don't know Tristan, he's the leader of the Black Lives Matter movement, Detroit Will Breathe, along with uh, his niece, uh, Nakia. Uh, Nakia Wallace. Yes. Yeah, we, Nakia we Wallace. interviewed Tristan on here one day when he was marching. Yeah. And, and so I said, Tristan should get credit for this because I asked the chief about it. The chief clowned me pretty hard. So then when I told Tristan that the chief clowned me, Tristan clowned me. And then it turns out everybody's laughing at me, but maybe something good is going to come out of it. So I'm, I'm okay to, to put the clown nose on if we're going to have a little more peace in our city and people can have their say and go about their, their separate ways. But I, I do think people um, uh, appreciate that the role that myself and Mandy Wright and a lot of journalists played in basically making sure that police knew they were being watched and also helping get the message out for the marchers and also to provide the response of the city when marchers, you know, they didn't always know everything that was going on on the inside. We had a better line on that. And we could try and explain both, both sides to our audience and to the public so that, so that, you know, we could kind of come together on the things we could come together on and on the stuff we disagree on, you know, let, let's hope we can disagree agreeably. Okay. All right. Thank you. ML. Listen, it's always, uh, a pleasure to hear from you. And we, of course, it's never enough time when we have uh, guests like you on email. We got to figure out uh, another time. Thank you for thank you for coming on. And if uh, our listeners, if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at authenticallydetroit.com. Don, I do have one announcement. Uh, the announcement is that I will be moderating uh, the Black Homes Matter event at 6 p.m. Wednesday, uh, January the 13th. Uh, be right. Yeah, I'll be moderating a panel with U.S. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Dr. Cornell West, and the Reverend Dr. William Barber. Uh, this is put on by the Coalition uh, for Property Tax Justice. Uh, you can go to illegalforeclosures.org to register for that event. Right now, we have about 2,000 people registered. Hopefully, that many folks show up because this is an important, important issue when we talk about the unconstitutional assessments that has resulted in a net loss of home ownership, particularly Black home ownership within Wayne County, uh, particularly in the city of Detroit. So join me for that. I'll be, I get to moderate these 
Titans. Um, that's I am so, so <laughs> sorry. I can't be there, but I, I I'm going to have to watch the read. You, you guys are going to record yeah. it and share yeah. it because I, I really want to see it, but I can't. Yeah. So uh, that's happening tomorrow. Donna, do you have any announcements or shout outs? You know, I always forget to write down all my shout outs. And I do. I Columbia so starts many. tomorrow. First I, day I of have class so many. <laughs> is tomorrow at, at Columbia so, University. Well, while you're doing Black Homes Matter, I'm going to be doing my class. But um, I do want to shout out, um, um, I don't know, the staff at ECN who've just been doing an outstanding job through it all. And um and making it possible really for me to actually do this class and also the leaders of LEAP um, who have been really standing up tall for our community. I expect great things to happen this year. Um, we're working on a lot of initiatives. I wanna thank ML Elric for coming on with us yes. and for you, um, sharing so much about your history that I don't think either one of us had any knowledge of. And, and sitting I'm in sure the hot the people seat. who listen, yeah, you know, and it is, but that's part, that's part of running for office, right? And so I do want to thank you for that and uh, wish you well in your endeavors. And um, thank you for your service to the community and for the work that you have done over the years in um, helping to hold public officials accountable. Um, it's not easy. And I know that um, nobody's ever going to always agree on everything, but I know that this has been a labor of love for you and you've put a lot of effort in. And as a longtime Detroiter, I do want to acknowledge your contributions to our local community also as a volunteer. Well, thank you, Don. I know that's not an endorsement. I'm still working on that. I think I have a ways to go, but I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity to speak to people. I appreciate your grace and, and just the generosity you guys have shown to me. And, and I will just tell you, if, if you want to be in public life and you can't stand up to questions like this, you have no business being in public life. I might not always be right. I might not always tell you what you want to hear, but I will never, I will never flinch. And I will never tell you that you can't ask me something or tell me something because I want to hear from people. And that's, that's the only way we get to know people and get moving in the right direction. So I want to thank you for what you guys are doing. And I, I want to, I want to see it grow because we need more people in the media. We need more people asking questions like this because that way it doesn't always come down to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> so here's the other thing is, um, well, you know, as you consider your, as you work through your candidacy, I really do encourage you and everybody else running for public office this year to take a look at the Detroiters Bill of Rights. We've got to decide whether we are a people-centered government in the city of Detroit or whether we are a finance-centered government, which looks at trying to incentivize business with the thinking that if we can just make businesses healthy enough, the community will thrive. It hasn't worked for us in our community and it won't until we enshrine certain rights in a bill of rights for people who live inside of our community who know they can count on not just the garbage, not just um, you know having the street lights on, but having clean, affordable water, having access to resources to maintain their homes. And that means sometimes a tool library and sometimes it means having access to being able to pay somebody to do things that you cannot do on your own. Um, recreation centers and things of that, um, you know, there's a whole long list as well as having a police force that is responsive to our needs. So please look at the Detroiters Bill of Rights as you move on. Um, Count on it. Coming tonight. All right. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We thank you for listening and we want you to catch the wave. We gotta keep